Hope you brought your Bible today. Let's open them up over to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. It's not a verse that you probably spend a lot of time on. Maybe you have an acquaintance with it as you read through the Bible, if you do that, because it's not like John 3.16 or Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but nevertheless, a very profound verse. We start a series today on the seven judgments of God. This is part one. I don't know how many parts this will be, but we are introducing the series today and then also covering the first judgment, which is a very profound one, and yet such a blessing to us. But the judgments of God, the judgment itself of God, not a popular topic nowadays, is it? The judgment of God. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, it says, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment, Blessed are all they that wait for him. Now, this is a fascinating verse. Did you notice as we went through here some of the the issues here, some of the ways of God? We see the patience of God. We see the grace of God. We see the mercy of God. And at the same time, we see the judgment of God. In one verse, you might say, well, I don't understand. How how does that, how does grace, mercy, you know, holiness, a long suffering, all those things. How does that all fit together with judgment? Well, it fits together perfectly because this is the way God has given it to us. See, the Lord God of the Bible, the one true God, he is holy, completely 100% pure, set apart from any sin whatsoever. The Bible tells us God is long suffering, long suffering towards man. He's gracious at the same time. He pours out unmerited kindness, undeserved mercy on us. He is merciful in that we don't get what we deserve because of our sin. And yet he will execute and exercise judgment because he is also righteous. And you know, folks, most of us are good with the first part of what I just said, but that last line a lot of people today, they just kind of, no, no, I don't believe God's that way. Maybe that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. You hear that a lot nowadays. But this is the way he is, and he operates according to his divine will. And can I tell you this, folks, that God has never changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there was grace, while the emphasis under the Mosaic law was the law, that was the spotlight, that was the emphasis, there was still grace under law and mercy under law. And today there's still judgment, even though we're in a dispensation of grace, and that's what the spotlight is on, the grace of God in this uh, time that we are in, this, this time or this economy, the dispensation of grace, the church age. Yet God says there is still judgment. This is the way he is, and this is how he operates according to his divine will. Now, when you look at what is going on in our country with the senseless attacks, the robberies, the crime of every kind, it is obvious that people do not take their accountability to God seriously. 
you see the, the, these footage, uh, security footage of, of people at train stops and so forth, and they just blindly, uh, I guess, what's the word for it? Sucker punch or whatever? That's a dumb word for it, but um, they just, uh, for no reason, they'll, they'll come up behind somebody and they'll just hit them as hard as they can and, and knock them down or knock them out. Sometimes they rob them, sometimes they just keep walking. They just decided they were going to knock somebody out. And the mentality is, or you see, you see on the news, you'll see people, a mob going into a store and just stealing everything they want out of that store. Jewelry, clothing, you name it. And then the mob leaves all at the same time. You're not getting away with anything. Okay? But this shows you the, can I use the word? The foolishness of man to think that he will never give an account for his actions. That is not true. God is a God of judgment, and he makes that very clear in the scripture. Now, this lack of taking God's accountability seriously, truth be told, we all do that at times because we would be a lot more cautious about the way we live if we took his accountability more seriously. Now, you know, folks, in light of that, with everything going on in our world, I have noticed there's a phrase that I hear from time to time. I've heard it more in the last few years, and I find it interesting being repeated more and more. It is the phrase, no judgment. You ever heard somebody say that? No judgment. What they mean by that is when people say this, they usually mean that you shouldn't judge them, even if they are doing something wrong or hurtful to another person, or what they say they've done, you know it's wrong, they know it's wrong, but they're embarrassed, and so they say, no judgment, wanting you to simply back off, shut your mouth, and not say that's right or wrong. This comes from a mentality of rejecting God. Okay, and believing that there are no absolutes. If you reject God, if in your mind God doesn't exist by the way he does, if you don't think he exists, the problem is with you, not with him. He's still there. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that is the way it is. But if you believe there are no absolutes, you don't want to believe there's God because if there's God, there is judgment. And if there's judgment, that means there's right and wrong. So if we can do away with God, and if we can do away with absolutes, therefore, no judgment, no judgment. Who's to say what I'm doing is right or wrong? It's okay. Why is that? Well, everything's okay. Really? If somebody broke into your home and killed your family, brutally killed your family in front of your eyes, would you not want them prosecuted? Absolutely. Well, wait a minute. You believe in judgment. You believe in justice. You believe in right and wrong. See, folks, it's easy to not believe in right and wrong, and it's easy not to believe in judgment when we're living safe, comfortable lives. But that's not the way it really is. See, if God doesn't exist and there are no absolutes, then yes, there's no grounds for judgment. But if God exists, there are grounds for judgment. And he is a judge, and he will judge Now, I've used the word judgment over and over and over. I think it's time to just take a pause and define some words, because seeing we're going to be spending this whole series on the seven judgments of God, let's define what judgment is. So what is judgment? What is judgment? Well, 
It is one of those words that we all know what it is, but sometimes we have a hard time putting it in words. So let me give you some of the better definitions I came across that I think paint a very good picture of what judgment is. Vine's Expository Dictionary says this, the act of sitting as a judge, hearing a case, and rendering a proper verdict. The Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms says this, quote, in a broad sense, it's God's evaluation as to the rightness or wrongness of an act of a creature, whether human or angelic, using the standard of God's own righteousness and holy character, unquote. I think that's a good one. Here's one from the Complete Word Study Dictionary. A verb meaning to bring justice, to go to court, to pass sentence, to contend, to act as a judge, to govern, to plead a cause, to be at strife, to quarrel. The verb regularly involves bringing justice or acting as a judge. The Lord himself is the chief judge over the whole earth and especially over those who oppose him, unquote. Are we getting a picture of what judgment is? Are we getting a picture of what it means? Now let's move on to this. Number two, the Bible declares that God is the judge of all mankind. This is why there's such a, uh, a movement, such a, a push to try to get rid of ju- God. Because if you can get rid of God, again, there's no judgment. But if you can't get rid of God, there is. You're going to give an account to him one day. The Bible declares that God is the judge of mankind. Man will give an account to him. God made the universe. He made our world. And he made all mankind. God is God. He has a right to set standards of right and wrong, and he has a right to judge according to those standards. Why? He's the creator. He's the boss. He's the one who makes the rules. Okay? The judgment of God is a major teaching of Scripture. Now, I was not aware how, I'll use a big word, ubiquitous, how's that one? Start out the new year. This issue is, it means it's everywhere. It's obvious it's everywhere, okay? I was not aware of how much it is that way until probably six months ago when I started thinking about this whole issue. And it is full, the Bible is full of talk about judgment, okay? And one of the reasons for this series is to bring that to your attention and to those of you who view this down the road to help us understand this. It is a major teaching of Scripture. God has judged in the past, he is judging today, and he will judge in the future. He's judged in the past. Give me some uh, examples of that. Sure, right in the Garden of Eden, first thing, first thing. Adam and Eve's sin, judgment upon creation came. Sin brought death. The wages of sin is death. Sin brought death. So right away in the Garden of Eden, Noah's flood, universal flood, that was a judgment on the world of perversion and corruption and evil. The Tower of Babel was a judgment on mankind because of his pride. The judgment on the children of Israel because of all their whining and complaining and their lack of faith, God said, okay, that, that generation will die in the wilderness. The only ones who are coming out of it are Joshua and Caleb. The book of Judges, 
Interesting book in our Bible. The book of Judges. And it's one situation after another if you've read through the book of Judges. Children of Israel, they they get off track. They get into sin. God sends a judge. They respond. They get back on track. God blesses them. Then they get off track again. They get into sin. God sends a judge. They get back on track. And then they get off again. And you get the picture. The book of Judges. Do you see how prevalent this is? How about the scattering of the 12 tribes? Okay. How about the divided kingdom? We have that. How about the scattering of the 12 tribes with that? How about the, the fact that after Israel, how about um, the captivity into Babylon? That was a judgment on the Jewish people. They were taken captive, right? I mean, I can go on and on. How about this one, which brings us up to today? How about the scattering of the Jewish people after their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah? And they've been gone for almost 2,000 years. Of course, God is bringing them back. God is bringing them back. May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation once again. See, folks, that was a judgment. God is in the business of judgment. Now, don't turn this off, by the way. You need to hear the rest of the message. The very fact that someone would say, oh, I don't want to hear this, or this is a downer, this is negative, it shows you need help in understanding the ways of God. Because you must understand the true picture of the nature of God, which, by the way, I've already shared with you from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. But let's look at some more scriptures. And we're going to spend a lot of time this morning just doing that. I want the Bible to be where we get our picture of the ways of God. So turn with me to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. The seven judgments of God. Now I know, again, people say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe he exists. I don't believe God judges. You know what, friend? You are ignorant of world history. You're ignorant of it. You are ignorant of how God has worked down through the ages, and the history is there to prove what he said was true. He did what he said he would do. So be open and understand maybe the thinking is defective thinking if we're not seeing it the way God says it to be. Psalm 9, verse 7, but the Lord shall endure forever. (laughs) You're not going to get rid of him. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Okay, his judgment is righteous judgment. It is upright. It is proper. It is according to truth. Who determines what that is? He does. He's the creator. He was here before we were. He's the one who made us. Therefore, he has a right to set the standards. And his standards are according to his very own perfect nature. By the way, we ought to be glad God is a God of judgment. Because if he did not judge and he did not intervene in the lives of men, folks, none of us would even be here today because anarchy would have messed us up and annihilated us Thousands of years ago. You're still in Psalms. Look with me to Psalm 96. This kind of message, this is a, this is a kind of a downer. This is counterculture. You know, no one's going to want to hear something like this. I can't control that. All I can do is trust God 
to uh, let his word go out and let people hear and understand, folks, we need to understand this. How you and I respond to it, that's up to us. But it needs to be said. Before great calamities came on the earth, the prophets of God heralded out the message of God, said there is judgment coming. And today is no different than any other time in history. There is judgment coming. And so we want to warn people and we want to show them the answer to all of that. Psalm 96, 13, before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. Do we see that? He's coming. And what's he going to do when he comes? Judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness. And I love this. And the people with his truth. His judgment will be perfect judgment and it'll be exactly the way it should be. He'll judge the people with his truth. By the way, You want to know the standard God is going to use when he judges the world? Jesus talked about it in John 12. He said it's the word of God will be the standard by which the world is judged. So if you want to know what right and wrong is and how God will judge, all you need to do is read the book. And it will tell us that. Let's move on. Number three, God is righteous and holy and demands that sin must be punished. This is inescapable. This is a fact of life. History bears it out that God believes this, has instituted this, and acts according to this. God is righteous and holy and demands that sin must be punished. There are many places in Scripture that declare this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verse 10. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read it. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Let that sink in. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. Folks, this is the, what God does, and this is what he is going to do big time in the future. One last verse in this section I want you to see with your very own eyes. The very last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. Go there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14. It says this, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. (laughs) So all the things done in secret, all the deals behind closed doors, all the crookedness, all the corruption, all the perversion. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God is going to bring every work into judgment. Nothing will escape his scrutiny and his judgment. This is the promise of God just as much as John 3.16 is. So this is the way it's going to be. Everything we do will be brought into judgment, but how and where? And that's what this series is about. There is much confusion on this. It is my desire that this series will bring clarity to this issue. We know God is going to bring judgment on everything, but how is he going to do it? Where is he going to do it? Even when is he going to do it? That's what this series is is about. Before we get into the first judgment, let me say this. This is not an Old Testament versus New Testament issue. We see judgment 
all through the Bible, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. As a matter of fact, the greatest of all judgments takes place in the book of Revelation, towards the end of it, chapter 20. So what are the seven judgments of God? All right. Told you we're going to end on a good note, and we will, because this judgment can be the greatest blessing of your life. And it is this. The first judgment is this, the judgment of sin at Calvary. The judgment of sin at Calvary. God has not changed. God is holy, and sin must be punished. It must be paid for. That's inescapable. Jesus, God in the flesh, is not a a Santa Claus kind of character who says all these things about judgment and against sin and all this, and then in the end, he's going to say, oh, don't worry about it. I was only kidding. I just did that to scare you to keep you in line. Come on, everybody goes to heaven. No, they don't. No, they don't. Sin has to be dealt with. My sin, your sin has to be dealt with if there's ever even a chance for us to go to heaven. The judgment of sin at Calvary. God is holy and sin must be paid for. Jesus Christ was judged on the cross for us when he died on the cross to pay for sin. Right? Do we understand it? He was judged for us on our behalf. He took the penalty of our sin so that we don't have to. He paid the price for our sin, so we don't have to. Folks, our sin has to be paid for. Our sin, my sin, your sin has a penalty. You are guilty. I am guilty. Our sin must be dealt with. God is holy. There's no getting around it. The good news is that that is why Jesus came. This is the greatest truth in the history of the world. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll break this down. The judgment of sin at Calvary. 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, it says, For Christ also hath once, once, suffered for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, I love this phrase, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that just beautiful? Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. Look up here. Let me illustrate it. Here we are. Here is our sin. We are sinners. God is holy. Our sin separates us from God because we cannot get to heaven with our sin. Our sin separates us. To go to heaven, you have to be sinless in the eyes of God. Now understand this. This is why when people say, well, I'm a pretty good person, you're not sinless. You're not perfect. You've sinned, and therefore you are disqualified from getting into heaven because your sin separates you from God. Heaven's perfect. If we die with our sin, God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. If we die with our sin, the wages of sin is death. We would be separated from God for all eternity in hell. We deserve that. We've sinned against God. God demands punishment for the sin because he's a holy, righteous God. 
Now, religion says, well, I'll, I'll do good. I'll, I'll be a good person. I'll, I'll behave. I'll try to live a moral life and all these things. They don't pay for sin. Death is the only payment for sin. A death payment has to be made. When God looks at me and he looks at my sin, he says, guilty. You're guilty. Death is the payment for your sin. Here we are. So what are we going to do? Good works won't take it away. Death is the only payment. God says this, because I love you so much, because I'm gracious, I'm merciful, at the same time, the judge of the earth, the holy one. He says this in his word, I love you so much, I will send my son, God the son, the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And he, because I love you so much, because I don't want you to go to hell, he will come and he will make a substitute payment for you. He'll pay for your sin so you don't have to. And that's exactly what he did. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ. No sin of his own, not guilty of anything. He went to the cross and he died in our place. He took my sin and yours upon himself and he made the complete payment for every sin you'll ever do in your entire lifetime. He paid it all, leaving us nothing to pay for. He did die for us. And while he was on the cross, folks, the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of on us. It was poured out on him, so it doesn't have to be poured out on you and me. And he died, was buried, and he came back from the dead. And here's what he says in his word. If you will simply believe that he did that for you, that payment for sin is put to your account. God gives you his righteousness, okay? The payment is good on your behalf. He gives you his righteousness. You have no sin to pay for because you accepted the payment of your sin that Jesus made. Now, if you put your faith still in yourself and you think you can earn it by your good works, then you're saying, I'll be responsible for my sin. Well, if you're going to be responsible for your sin, you will die and you'll spend forever in hell suffering for your sin. Jesus came so you don't have to. So our sin was judged at Calvary. So we don't have to be judged because of it. So the judgment of sin was at Calvary. First subpoint here. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. Let me give you some scriptures on this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Watch this. Here we are, sinners. For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God. How do I get the righteousness of God? I have to be in Christ. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God gives you his very own righteousness. You go to heaven on what he has done for you. Are you still in 1 Peter? Look at chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, Who his own self, referring to Jesus, bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. You notice that? For his own self bear our sins. Look up here. For his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Jesus paid for them so you don't have to. He paid the price for all sin so we don't have to. But you have to believe for that to be good on your behalf. More about that in a few minutes. Let me show you another verse. Galatians chapter 3. 
It says in verse 13, For Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Oh, pastor, what is the curse? I'm glad you asked. Keep reading. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus, by the way, the way Jesus died had to be that way. He had to die on a tree, which is what the cross is. He was lifted up and God poured out his wrath on him. And he died there as a substitute for you and me. So we don't have to do it. It's kind of this way. Here I am sentenced to die, and I'm on my way to the cross, and I'm standing at the cross, and Jesus comes and he says, no, no, out of the way, I'll do it for you. I'll die for your sins so you don't have to. How foolish it would be to push him out of the way and say, no, that's okay, I'll do it. I did it, I deserve it, I'll do it. Wouldn't you rather go free? Wouldn't you rather live? God offers salvation. Now, you might say, well, then if what you're saying is true, then everybody goes to heaven, right? No, not everybody goes to heaven. Secondly, this was done on behalf of all mankind. It was substitutionary, okay? Look with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Look at the graphic picture here. Verse 5. Look how many times the word our, O-U-R, is used. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Watch this again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're sinners. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid, here's Christ, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died on behalf of all mankind. This is a very important thing to understand. He did not die just for certain people. He died for everyone. Probably the clearest verse in all the Bible I could show you, and I'd like you to look at it, is towards the back of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, in verse 2, it says this, and he, referring to Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means the satisfactory payment. He is the satisfactory payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus just didn't die for the sins of believers. Now, let me just share, it's kind of like a little quickie sidebar note here. In preparing for this, this week, I came over, I was, you know, looking at different books and books on systematic theology and all these kind of things. You would be amazed, this first point about the, uh, the seven judgments of God, this first judgment, the judgment of sin at Calvary, some of the titles that were given for this judgment were very interesting. One of them that is very popular among even sound Bible teachers, quote unquote sound Bible teachers, is Jesus died for all the sins of believers. Or Jesus died for the sins of believers. Now he did, 
But they're not the only ones he died for. So I thought and thought and thought, and I thought, how could I phrase that that would accurately cover it? And this is what I came up with, the judgment of sin at Calvary. He died for everyone's sins. First John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay. Now that leads us to, which I've already touched on, but it's a profound truth. It leads us to this. The benefits of this judgment come only to those who believe Jesus did it for them. So the payment has been made, but the payment's not good on your behalf, on your account, until you put your faith in him, that he did that for you. And when you do, then the payment, he imputes to you, he puts to your account his own righteousness. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. We need a payment for sin. We are in debt. Jesus came to pay the price. And when we accept the payment he made on our behalf, he takes that payment that he made and he puts it to our account and that erases the debt. The benefits of this judgment come only to those who believe Jesus did it for them. Over in John chapter 3, in verse 36... And you see the difference here, John 3.36. By the way, John 3.36, it's uh, John the Baptist is speaking. People think, well, John the Baptist, he was just the maniac that told everybody, you know, he ran through the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey and telling people, turn from your sins, turn from your sins. You know what Jesus, or, or, not Jesus, John the Baptist never said, turn from your sins. Did you know that? He said, repent. But the Greek word is metanoeo or metanoia, and it means have a change in your mind or change your thinking, is what he's saying. Change your thinking, change your thinking. How do you know that? Because in John chapter 19, it actually explains that. Paul explains that that's what John was saying in very clear terms. But John the Baptist also said, verse 36, he that believeth on the Son hath, right now, everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. Remember? He judges sin, but the wrath of God abides on him. Who? The unbeliever. But the one who will believe in Christ as his Savior, the moment he does, God gives him everlasting life. His sin has been taken care of. His sin has been judged. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Literally, believeth him that sent me. Because the Father bore testimony to the Son that the Son was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's the context. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. There it is. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. One Bible teacher said this, the Christian is not to be judged as to salvation since Christ has already been judged for our sins on the cross. So I will never be judged for my sins. Why? Because I've accepted the payment Jesus made for my sins. And God put that to my account. He imputed God's righteousness to my account. All my sins were forgiven the moment I trusted Christ as my Savior. And so the judgment of my sin at Calvary has taken place. But I must believe in Christ for that judgment to be good on my behalf. 
And that is the beauty of this. Couple passages in Romans and we will close. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 in verse 23. Now read it carefully. We know these are familiar verses to us, but let's read it carefully. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified, for those of us who are believers, being justified freely, freely, justified means declared righteous. By the way, that is a legal term used in the court of law. In the court of law, there is a judge who resides. Just happens to be here, God. And it says, being declared righteous, that's what justified means. The judge declares you as righteous, not guilty. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the payment for sin that is in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Whom God hath set forth to be the satisfactory payment, the propitiation, through faith in his blood, the payment he made, to declare his righteousness for the remission, the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just. Just is related to the word justice, isn't it? Justice has to do with judgment. Do you see how all this fits together? To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Turn with me to chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. So through Jesus Christ, when I trust him as my Savior, God says, I declare you not guilty. Why? Because all of my sin has been forgiven. The payment for my sin was taken care of through Christ. My sin was judged at Calvary through what Jesus Christ did. And when I accept his payment as my own, my sin was judged at Calvary. Isn't that good news? That's why it says in Romans 8, 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God's elect are believers, simply put. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Now get the picture. Self-righteous people and even the devil comes. Do you see what your kid did? You see what you did? You sinned. You sinned. God says, yeah, I see it, but hey, I've already declared him as righteous. Not guilty. It's been taken care of. God says, I took care of it through my son. The sin was punished. It, the sin has to be punished. Has to be paid for. But I took care of it through my son. He was judged for that person. Therefore, not guilty. <laughs> I'm going to appeal to a higher court. There is no higher court than God. He's the judge of the world. And he says, I'm not guilty. That's why I'm secure. That's why I'm going to heaven when I die, because he's declared it. It's not wishful thinking. It's believing what God said. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So even when we sin in this life, folks, you know, the devil's the accuser of the brethren, right? The Bible says. Can you see the devil running up to the throne? Did you see what your kid did? 
And Jesus said, Father, I'm kind of, doesn't really necessarily happen exactly this way, but Father, that's taken care of. What about what they did last week? That's taken care of. Took care of it on Calvary. Jesus declares it to heaven. No matter what, it's been taken care of. Because they put their faith in me that I did it for them. And when I believe in Christ as Savior, God puts to my account his righteousness, and the payment Christ made is good as if it was my very own payment for my sin. We need a payment for sin. God's justice demands it, but the grace of God provides it, okay? This is a wonder, folks. I hope this gets you excited. Are you excited about this? You better be excited. I don't know. Something wrong with you, man. You must believe in Christ as Savior for this payment to be put to your account, effective on your behalf. But when you do, it is done, and it is yours, and you have everlasting life. The first judgment, the judgment of sin at Calvary, it has been done. And all God is asking you to do, folks, is to believe it for your own. And when you believe in Christ as your Savior, that he died and he died for your sins and rose from the grave, he gives you everlasting life that moment. This is the greatest truth in all the world. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.